Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Webb. Hello. And Dixie Cochran. Hi. And, and, Travis Lowe. And, and, and. Hello. Hello. Hello, all the way back there, the ghost of Travis Lake. How? Uh... <laughs> We're not criticizing your audio quality too much, but no. How? <laughs> uh, well, I, usually, I would ask my co- my regular co-hosts how they are, but as you're a guest in our home, I think it's only fair that we ask you how are you doing. How was your trip? You know, hang your coat up there. That's it. Take your shoes off for you. We don't want that. Don't, don't sit so, in that chair. That's Matthew's yeah. chair. But yes, otherwise, that, you can sit down now. That is my chair. Get. Get up. No, get out. Out. <laughs> you've insulted me. You've insulted the dog. You've insulted the painting of Mrs. Eisenhower above the fireplace. Get out. I kind of love this, like, fan fiction that Matthew's writing where Eddie, me, and Matthew live together in a house with a painting of Mrs. Eisenhower and a dog. And a dog. Like, <laughs> what, what, what breed of dog? Yeah, what, what, what kind of dog? Is it a pug? I don't. I, mean, uh, I think it must be a pug, and if we've got a painting of Mrs. Eisenhower, I think the dog is called Ike, and sure. and the painting of Mrs. Eisenhower is actually also of a dog. Who <laughs> was Mrs. Ike? <laughs> Ike, Ike, Ike the pug's deceased girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is it one of those paintings where like? Somebody takes the dog's head but puts it on like a really regal, like royalty body. With like an Elizabethan ruff. Yeah, yeah, ruff. yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, so you mean like my entire career? <laughs> well, no, like our friend Meredith has paintings of her cat, Spanjo and Noctis, but they look like regal Victorian generals and stuff. Right. So I was just wondering. If that was the kind of painting that we had, because that's the kind of painting I would enjoy having. Well, as you live in this house, you get, you know, you get as much of a vote as all the rest of us. And I think <laughs> if, that's, if that's the kind of painting you want, then I see no reason to oppose it. Awesome. Where do we all live now? Travis, why don't we ask you? You're the guest. <laughs> uh, don't I feel like that's that's more responsibility than I want in this okay. role. <laughs> Back out into the porch then until you learn your manners. <laughs> you can't tell us where to live, then what good are you? Ooh, we have spend, a porch. I'm going to spend That's a nice. lot of time on this porch. <laughs> I used, Three smoke. I, I had a, uh, a great aunt who didn't like things like swearing at the dinner table. Uh, you know, it was considered impolite to, to have that, or to either swear or talk about anything, you know, intimate or personal or anything like that. She would say, not in front of the food. <laughs> Does the food get easily offended? Whoa. <laughs> I, I guess so. Yeah, but it was that was her way of saying, you know, we don't talk about that kind of thing at dinner. Sure. So, yeah. Hmm. It's a really bizarre way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you're insulting Matthew's family? Wow. Wow. You insulted my painting. You insulted the chair. You insulted the, Matthew's family. You want to pick a place like for you. us to live. Like yeah. this is this is why I'm never on this show. No one just doesn't like you around here. Oh, there, there's plenty of reasons why you're not on this show, Travis. <laughs> <laughs> this is just but one of them. 
so now that the the weird Onyx house uh, has been uh, <laughs> developed, at least the porch and the foyer, we can I think develop. It's a manse. Yeah, a manse. I think we'll add further <laughs> rooms to it as the series goes on. I mean, we're only a hundred <laughs> plus episodes in. It's about time. <laughs> Nice, nice, yeah. nice. Mm. Uh, so yeah, how is everybody? How are you, Travis? Uh, aside from the the previous. Oh, uh, things are wonderful. I am uh, five by five, as Faith the Vampire Slayer would say. Um, mm. Life is good. Uh, busy, but uh, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll dive into that a plenty. Uh, I am sure we will. What about you, Dixie? How are you doing? I'm okay. You know. Just hanging out, working. working. September? That's weird. What are you working <laughs> on in September? Oh God, too many things. Mostly editing. Um, a couple things I can't talk about as usual. Mm. Uh, getting some exalted stuff done. You know, the stuff I'm supposed to be working on. <laughs> well, you know that always helps, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Trying to figure out if it's September or like March 183rd. You know. Yeah. It, it is definitely March 183rd. Okay, uh, alright. Yeah, that, that particular day in March does appear to have dragged on for a while now, but we'll get there. We'll get to, we'll see the sunset, and hopefully it will rise again. I'm also excited that Scion Demigod's on Kickstarter. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, as of this week. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that it a million dollars uh, so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in like half an hour. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, it was uh, unparalleled, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I couldn't be happier. Um, but yes, uh, to listeners, if you haven't checked it out yet, Scion Demigod, which is the latest game in the Scion series, is now on Kickstarter, ready for you to back either in PDF, traditional print, print on demand, and all the rest of our lovely options. I think there's even an option there to have the games developer run a session for you. And yep. uh, I know for a fact that the games developer, Neil Raymond Price, is a fantastic story guide. So please do mm -hmm. check that out if that's the kind of thing that might interest you. Uh, but I haven't asked Eddie. Eddie, how are you doing? Um, I am doing okay, all things considered. Um, uh, one of the... Uh, we were talking last week about productivity, and I think one of the downsides sometimes of taking time off is uh, uh, project collision. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes you have a lot of things kind of just all hit at once, and it's kind of where I'm at right now, where it's like I am uh, wrapping up uh, red lines on Squeaks in the Deep for uh, Realms of Pugmire, which uh, most of the people on this uh, recording have written for. Um, and uh, in the middle of that, I also... Uh, am Inherited, uh, I was asked to work on uh, the Changeling novellas, so I'm going to be redlining those. And then, of course, I'm also trying to get together uh, Trinity Continuum Anima. Uh, so that's three books kind of all at the same time, as well as there's some books that I've been asked to pitch. Um, and I do, do some work on, on the future of Pugmire. It's about all I can say on those fronts. So it's, it's kind of a lot right now. Um, yeah. But uh, all I could do is kind of just take it in small bite-side chunks and just Get through it day by day. It's the kind of workload that would really help for you to be able to work in different environments from time to time. So yeah. even though you're keeping your head down and sort of charging through, you can at least have a change in scenery. Have you started venturing outside the the house to work yet? Or is that still something you're holding not, back on? Yeah, not quite yet. Um, because uh, um, 
uh, Georgia has only recently become uh, not the first state in the United States to be able to catch COVID from. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry um, you lost that first place. Yeah, I know. We tried, we tried really hard to keep it. Our governor worked really, really hard on that front. Um, but uh, it doesn't mean that I'm a little reluctant to trust my fellow uh, uh, citizens to be able to act responsibly right now. Uh, so I haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, I have looked at some other uh, uh, tactics and, and, and tips um, to try to kind of keep myself uh, motivated. But really at this point, I think there's just a certain amount of accepting that this is the reality I live in and doing what I can, even if things are not coming out at the pace, I would personally prefer recognizing that the reality is at least things are moving ahead. And that's all that really matters. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as for me, uh, my son just went back to nursery this week uh, for the first time, uh, testing the waters there. And uh, That's the mixed day, emotions, I'm sure. Yeah, well, it's been a long, long period now of uh, constant presence of, uh, well, all of us being in the same house, uh, barring mm. some exceptions. And, of course, the day he comes back, he's got a sore throat. And uh, by the following morning, uh, we've all got sore throats as well. Uh, lovely uh, lovely while i am sure that it is nothing more than a common cold uh it is you know pretty bloody typical given that we've been in stasis pretty much for over six months now and not in contact with other children it's natural that as soon as you sort of dive into one of these festering pits of child illness one of you is going to (laughs) come out with it and uh, you know they are adorable little outbreak vectors aren't they (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, it's um, sort of jumping into a ball pit or ball pool is, I guess, equivalent right now to jumping into a pit of slurry. You're going to come out with something unpleasant. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but one should hopefully be more enjoyable than the other. Um, I, oh, God, I just remembered something very dark. And then I'm going to pass on to you, Travis. You, the, it is incumbent upon you to lighten the mood. <laughs> up, oh, that, that's so, my greatest skill. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So this is rather it's rather sad, but also darkly amusing. So by all means, oh, no. uh, if we need to cut it out with uh, Donkey Kong and Mario Kart noises, Dixie, I'm relying on you as editor. <laughs> so, what? Why am I? I'm editing this. <laughs> uh, so I was much younger, and a boy that I vaguely knew went missing, and unfortunately. He had fallen into his uh, family's slurry pit and drowned. So that's not funny. That isn't funny at all. Of course, no, it's horrible. Right. That's the However, level. when uh, his fellow pupils and teachers uh, were sort of giving eulogies to the local newspaper, the headmaster referred to him as a bright and bubbly boy. And for some reason, <laughs> thank oh, you. No. <laughs> Thank you. I, I was worried. I was worried I would get to the end of that anecdote and I would just be meeting with silence, you cold-hearted bastard. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's and that was exactly the right. Uh, like, it's, it's the. I don't want to laugh, but I just couldn't help it yeah, because it's the, it was it's like the that's horrified laughter. The like, right. oh god, how would you not just say that? that? Yeah, don't and, say that. Well, you know, I, I, admittedly, everyone tries to find humor in grief. It's like when our local ice cream man died during one of our sort of village fates and everyone was saying ha ha he flaked out and, um, <laughs> and he was selling chips at the time so was, was he battered to death that kind of oh thing. no but, but anyway so now that we've made light of two deaths 
And I say we <laughs> because you're all complicit in this. Travis. <laughs> That, that's not how this works. That's how any uh, of this yeah. works. Yes. How am I? Just, just follow that. Like, there's no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so, let, uh, so uh, you brave people in the audience, thank you very much for sticking around. Now to introduce our first act, Travis, the man with a leg. I have. Compare uh, walks. I have th- three of them, if you count my last name. Um, ah, there you go. There you go. See, that's your opening line. The crowd. <laughs> Greets you with mild applause. <laughs> <laughs> that's Yay. that's much more applause than I normally get when I speak, so I'll take it. <laughs> um. So yes, uh, let, well, let's talk about why you're really here. That's a bit. They came from beyond the grave. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to uh, kill Superman. <laughs> We're always here to kill Superman. Yeah, and yet we've never managed. Uh, so yeah, uh, why you're really here, Travis? We we invited you on here to speak about a project that you've been working on at length for the last few months, longer even. Yeah, it's been uh, eleven months since I pitched it. I think. Yeah, my God, and it's taken you this long to get it now. I know, right? And, uh, <laughs> and I no, I recently had the pleasure of reviewing the manuscript for this particular product, which we will name. And in fact, it's no real surprise because it's the title of the episode. But uh, it's Dead Man's Rust for Scarred Lands. And I was incredibly impressed by the quality of this manuscript. And I'm not just saying that for the sake of listeners, uh, you know, shallowly, as it were. It is an incredibly well-written adventure, so detailed. There's just so much of what I like out of an adventure in this rather epic-sized volume. So, well, thank you. That's, I'm going that's super to, sweet to hear. Thank you. Well, uh, no, I, and I mean it. And I guess what people are probably wondering right now is... What is Dead Man's Rust for Scarred Lands? So yeah. take it away, Travis. Please tell oh, us. Uh, Dead, Dead Man's Rust is a complete campaign. Uh, it's designed to take the characters from levels 1 through 10. Um, it's set in uh, central Gelspad in uh, the Scarred Lands. So Gelspad is kind of the main continent that 5th uh, edition has been focused on to this point. Um there's a, this is kind of the area where the main fighting went down during the war between the gods and the Titans. So out of all the land masses on Skarn, uh, Gelspad has, has probably the most areas that are impacted by that war. The Blood Sea is on the uh, East Coast. You have, um, you know, uh, Things like the Fangsfall Mountains, where Gorok's teeth landed uh, and made a mountain range. And you have uh, the Hornsaw Forest in the center of Gelsped, which is where Mormo was uh, sort of the mother of hags, was uh, basically dismembered and her blood and viscera just uh, mutated and and corrupted this entire forest. Uh, That's where you get the... uh, adorable hornsaw unicorns, which are um, like regular unicorns on steroids with a serrated uh, horn. Why would you call them adorable? They're cute. You just got to, you know. They're not. (laughs) They're murder machines. 
<laughs> they're adorable murder machines. Um, but <laughs> Mormo, Mormo thinks they're adorable, but I don't think that's much of a, uh, a sort of trip advisor right That's now. true. Let, let's, let's clarify. With these ponies, friendship is not magic. <laughs> friendship is stabby. <laughs> friendship is stabby. <laughs> But Unlike ponies, those unicorns do have a concept of death and how to inflict this is, it. This is true. This is very true. Um, so uh, the Hornsaw Forest plays kind of a central uh, role in Dead Man's Rust. It's where a lot of the activity is centered. The The campaign, uh, we tried our best when we were constructing it uh, to build it as a sandbox that you can approach from uh, several different angles. You know, you can, if you've got a Scarred Lands game running, uh, you should be able to integrate this into it pretty easily if you're starting a new campaign, but maybe you don't like what we have set up for the uh, introduction, uh, which takes place in the uh, city of Leone, the capital of the Manticora Confederacy. Um, you can go with that introduction, or there's, uh, I think, 10 additional entry hooks that we list, uh, but there's also a number of... Uh, on ramps throughout the campaign where you can bring your characters in. So you're not tied down to one means of entry. Um, but yeah, we're exploring the area within that Hornsaw forest. Uh, we are touching base on, uh, aside from the adorable unicorns and the, you know, blood reapers and twisted mutated plant life that wants to kill you. Uh, the Hornsaw forest is also home to, Livid Autel, which is the uh, city of necromancers that are probably the most twisted uh, practitioners of that art in all of Skarn, possibly in all of fantasy media. Um, so they get a they get sort of a, a bit of a starring role in this campaign as well. What what makes them so twisted? Uh, they're entirely. Uh, it's kind of if you take like Voldemort and mix them with kind of a third Reich kind of mentality about, uh, you know, their, their goal is effectively to rule everything, gain immortality in the process. Whoever they can't subjugate, they animate. That's pretty much their, their life, their central philosophy. Um, and their city, they've, the laws of the city are very draconian, but the, the punishments, they've come up with a means of um, stealing little portions of their citizens' souls and using those portions to grant slightly greater autonomy to undead. So if you commit a crime rather than working in a labor camp or uh, sitting in a cell, they might take away uh, the time from when you were seven to when you were nine from your mind by pulling out a little piece of your soul and sticking it in a zombie. And now that zombies may be a little bit better at, you know, uh, mowing the grass, for example. That seems nice. Yeah. They're uh, kind and, and charitable folk. Um, no, they're, they're, they're real <laughs> monsters and they're responsible, uh, particularly, uh, one, uh, called Lucian Bain, who is, uh, sort of one of the, I guess, uh, leaders of that civilization uh, is responsible for some real, real terrible um, 
just monstrous conduct that kind of kicks off the uh, overall arc of Dead Man's Rust. And so you get a chance to uh, lock horns with them and and, um, face them down. You get a, a real fun enemy, I think, to... Uh, to face off against in the Necromancers of Gilgadatel. And then um, also in that region is the uh, Gleaming Valley, which is the home to the Hell Legionnaires, probably my favorite species in Skylines. Yeah, they're, they're really yeah, cool. They're very, very neat. We got to really dive into, uh, because we wanted to create the campaign as sort of a sandbox um there, we, we had to spend a lot of time in each of these locations learning about the people uh, who live there and really expanding how legionary culture and looking at the different ways. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, how legionnaires are effectively fallen, uh, dead adventurers or heroes or, or soldiers or what have you, whose spirits are pulled through these uh, magical spires and then mystically bound to armor and they effectively become a new person. And so one of the things that we get to explore in this campaign uh, is a society that's made of people who have had this experience. Um, How is that going to manifest in their day-to-day life? What sort of different philosophies are people going to have? What sort of different approach are people going to have? Some people are going to be, um, you know, are naturally going to, you know, think, well, I'm me now. And, and there's maybe a intellectual curiosity as to what I was before, but it doesn't really matter. Whereas other people are going to have more of an experience like in the uh, classic film RoboCop, where you come back from the dead and, uh, <laughs> And you, you know, have these these sensations and memories that are tied to your previous life, and 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 do you investigate it, and do you want to know what that was? Uh, so that's kind of roiling in the background in that in that region. But we also just uh, dive into how those things have shaped that society. Uh, and then the last area that it covers, uh, speaking geographically, is the Broadreach Horizon, which is technically part of the Hornsaw Forest. Um, prior to Mormo getting torn to shreds, the Hornsaw Forest was called the Broadreach Forest, and it had regular unicorns that weren't on steroids and stabby. And uh, then Mormo happened, and the elves who were uh, indigenous to the Hornsaw basically uh, did a ritual to allow their spirits to enter the forest and try to cleanse this titanic corruption. Uh, and after after about hmm. a century of doing that, uh, they managed to clear out a very, very, very small band in the northern part of the forest and then uh, popped back out from sheer exhaustion. And so now they have this uh, little territory that they have secured and that is back to its pristine uh, condition, and they're doing everything in their power to preserve that while expanding it. And uh, we detail all of the tribes of the... Uh, Broadreach Horizon, there's, uh, including the dwarves that live there and the uh, nomadic tribes, there's, I think, 31. Uh, so each of those gets kind of a, a write-up and examination. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of, well, a lot of clans in this. Uh, yes. Um, 
tons. But, but yeah, I, I've certainly got some favourites from the list. Big fan of the porcupines. Um, as I feel everyone should be on the fruit bats. The fruit bats. Yeah. The fruit bats are very cool. Fruit bats. Um, Porcupines and bats are two of my favorite creatures. So yeah, they're they're uh, they're a very uh, cool culture because you have, it breaks down. You have um, each there's like separate clan types. So you have your beast clans, hunter clans, plant clans, and then your uh, rogue clans, and then each of those has. Uh, you know, between four and like, I think the biggest is uh, plant, maybe. I think they have like nine. Um, but I'm terrible at remembering facts like that off the top of my head, so I'm sure it's wrong if somebody looks. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they have, uh, they each have a different, like, uh, particular aspect of their overall theme that they venerate. And they all have very, very different cultures. It's one of the things that was a lot of fun just from a development perspective to watch unfold was as the writers were sorting out uh, each clan's uh, sort of uh, mores and, and, and beliefs, how those complemented and conflicted with one another. And that's something that I think is going to be a lot of fun for people uh, to explore at the table if they choose to do so. Um, yeah, you know, and that was and that was one of the things that we really tried to put together as we were, uh, or tried to keep focus on as we were putting this campaign together. Is yes, there is a A to B to C plot that you can follow, um, absolutely, but we wanted to make sure that we gave you enough tools that you could pick this up and run content from it without ever having to touch that plot. And that you could also mm. run that plot without having to dive into uh, sort of the intricacies of inter-clan politics within the broad reach horizon. Like, if that's not your game, you don't have to play it, if that makes sense. So, I, I've got a pretty big question, really. And it's uh, related to the construction of uh, a campaign as sizable as this one. Because, uh, do you know the word count off the top of your head? A hundred and sixty-six thousand, give or take. Yeah, that's that's quite hefty for a source book. Yeah, and uh, and I found when trying to develop scenarios, adventures, and the like that um, collaboration can be the most difficult part because if you have a writer on every single chapter, those writers need to be communicating with each other. If you have multiple mm -hmm. writers on every single chapter, it can become even more cumbersome. And then, of course, it all falls on the shoulders of the developer to make sure everyone's sort of singing from the same hymn sheet by the time it gets turned in. And so knowing what kind of challenge that is, how did you, as a developer, manage that? And would you manage it differently now with the benefit of hindsight? Um, I might uh, do a couple things differently. One of the things that I think... Uh, provided us with a great strength in working on this because we had a big team. I think it was 14 writers altogether on this book. Um, but wow. we, when I pitched it, I pitched it on a very long development cycle because I wanted to have uh, several meetings going into first drafts where we could sort of uh, 
hammer down some of the uh, more, I guess, esoteric aspects of, of collaboration, if that makes sense. Figure out some of these blind spots that if you're sitting in your uh, silo writing your own content for yourself, uh, you might get a note that says, oh, I need to hook over to this uh, story arc, but you're not talking to that writer over there. You're just writing your own little thing. We tried to avoid that as much as possible. Uh, I tried to really foster open communication between the writers uh, and myself, uh, have regular meetings and just really make sure everyone knew what everyone else uh, basically was doing um, and that everyone had a clear and open communication channel with one another um, because it was, it was designed to be a very collaborative approach. Um, that didn't, always work the way I had intended. Um, but for the most part it did. Uh, and I'm, and I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, I might've if going back through, I might've made the development cycle a little shorter on it. I really wanted to pad it for time, but I think if you over pad it for time, um, you sometimes have a hard time holding the interest of the freelancers working on it. Um, you know, and that's just because, you know, life happens. Um, yeah. you know, and the other thing that I would probably say that, uh, was uniquely, uh, impactful to this project was that, uh, the core sort of, um, I guess, uh, it's not really a MacGuffin, but the, um, the inciting, um, Incident, the inciting action that, that, that sort of kicks you along the road of this campaign uh, is effectively a magical plague. Um, COVID wasn't happening when we started working on this book. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. And we had, you know, I had some writers like uh, shift around word count and, and need to step away from certain sections of the book because at the time it was just too emotionally draining for them to work on uh given given the status yeah. of covid and where they were living and what their environs were um which i absolutely understand um but yeah if i uh you know that that was that was honestly probably the biggest roadblock so that colors a lot of the hindsight <laughs> um, <laughs> uh but yeah i mean i think i think uh having a long development cycle on something like this is good. I maybe would have made it a little shorter. Um, and definitely collaboration. If you have that many and collaboration with a clear uh, knowledge of, you know, who's kind of the, uh, where the buck stops. You know, who's... Yeah. Well, I know one thing that I've learned from hard experience is um, uh, uh, freelancer uh, attention is like a gas. It will fill to expand the available space. Um, <laughs> so if you give them two months to write, then they will get it done in two months. If you give them four months to write, they'll get it done at the very end of four months. If you give them six months to write, they'll get the very end of six months. So it just, I mean, the actual lead up time sometimes doesn't matter as much as the time that you're working in. So um, I could see why maybe that too long of a cycle might have been an issue. Whereas I think you're probably approaching it from they think about the first meeting, they went the first meeting, they think about the second meeting, they have a second meeting. Whereas in my experience, it's usually, um, oh shit, there's a meeting today, I should probably show up. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, I mostly only think about things during the time that I'm being required to think about them. So like mm -hmm. if we're having a meeting about a thing, I'm like, I'm thinking very hard about this thing. 
And then afterwards, right. I'm like, I will think about this thing next at the next meeting about this thing. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And right. I think I could have uh, used that as a bit more of a strength um, by going shorter, having the same amount of meetings and the same amount of communication, just having it um, closer together. You know, because we were doing like a meeting a month, right? Uh, during first drafts, we could have done a meeting a week during first drafts and had the thing done uh, theoretically faster. Um, and I, I just don't know. I'll need a little bit of time for my brain to cool off before I can uh, kind of look at it and evaluate and go, did this pay off Sure. in terms of richness of ideas, right? Um, because yeah. one thing that I, I, it really, like, I can't describe how good it feels to have someone say that it's, uh, you know, that, it's, that it turned out right, that, that, that we have created this sort of epic, this sort of robust, uh, text. That was the goal from, from jump was to have something that not only is that main through line for the plot, just super cool and fun. Uh, but it's just filled with, uh, hooks for other things. It's, it's a utility book. It's a book that you might grab off your shelf. Anytime you're running a scarred lands game, regardless of where it's set or, you know, what the action is going on. There's going to be something in here that, that should be useful to you um, in terms of like story. There's also a bunch of system stuff we're introducing. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, I kind of derailed my own train of thought there going on too long. Um, no, no, uh, it's... That happens. I think uh, everyone knows that's the kind of book I love. And when I was uh, giving this its read through uh, for approvals, uh, I mean, it, I, in fact, I think this does sound like high praise, but I think it's deserved. It feels like the Chicago by night for Scarred Lands because mm-hmm. there is just, there's so much you can do with this book, more than I anticipated being able to do with a D&D campaign setting, honestly. And, I mean, often, I love the Scarred Lands, I love Planescape, I love the Forgotten Realms, and as I was reading through it, I was thinking, oh, okay, so I could actually set some of this in the Chondal Wood in Faerun, if I particularly want, because I'm running a game set in the Forgotten Realms right now. I can hmm. use this as a as a resource, as, as Travis is saying, as a toolbox, and that, for me, it holds a great amount of appeal as a customer, it's mainly it is the main reason I buy RPGs these days. It's more to harvest them for <laughs> for pieces for components than to run games as written. Uh, so yeah, uh, I I think it's in that in that respect it definitely achieved its uh, its task or target. Um, and I, I was going to say, uh, Travis. In terms of the plot that runs through it and what you were aiming for with this book, if you were to, I guess, let's say you've got a fairly lengthy <laughs> elevator ride, but what is your elevator pitch for this book? Why should someone um, buy it? it? In terms of the central plot, it is set up to our design goal was to create sort of the ultimate D&D experience uh, in terms of your character's journey. Uh, following the 
plot as written in the book, you start out as, uh, you know, young, wild-eyed, spry adventurers who, uh, you know, are at a, at a fun party and get an opportunity to make a little bit of coin escorting a elderly fellow back to his home. Um, and that journey unlocks various truths about the world and introduces certain conflicts. And as you uh, follow the journey along, at each step you are uh, sort of growing as a hero and overcoming these new conflicts. You come face to face with new cultures, uh, new societies, their problems, and it becomes very apparent very soon that there's this challenge, this magical disease that is afflicting the hollow legionnaires. And your heroes just might be the only people that can do anything about it. And so there's that sort of call to adventure and going from, you know, leaving this civilized, uh, quiet, calm area into and being sort of drawn up into this epic plot to save an entire species um, against a horrible antagonist in the in the uh, Necromancers of Clodagh-Tell. Uh, to me, that's what fantasy gaming is about. It's about starting from these humble beginnings and being swept up into a large, grand, sweeping adventure. And not to get too spoilery on it, but we also did include a very explicit and direct reason and means to go and slay a dragon. So you get your dungeons, you get your dragons, the whole thing is covered. Um, That would be my elevator ride from the top of the Willis to the bottom. Trying to recall what kind of uh, dragon, so wood rack wood dragon, dragon, yeah. Um, one of the things that's that was super fun about working on this book was I love Scarlands. I don't make any, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty loud about that. But it's a world that's full of super rich lore. It's very difficult to be a scholar of it, and I'm not the type of person that like memorizes like factoids about a world's lore anyway. I just ooh and ah at it, and then I re-reference it when I need it. Um, but in the research for this, I discovered that, so as part of the ritual that the Broadreach elves did, so they could cleanse the forest, uh, many of them went to this one place and basically let their bodies die. Um, they sort of gave their souls over to the forest and their bodies crumbled in death. And the sadness of that moment, uh, mixed with the corruption from Mormo's essence, created this wood rack dragon that just feeds on the misery of the hornsaw. Like that's what where it draws its power. That's what it's there for, to make sure this place stays just gross and oppressive and horrific. Um, so naturally, you have to go stab it a lot. Um, it just seems like the perfect enemy. Um, to, to throw in there. And it's not that, that whole thread unlocks another, um, it's not part of the central quest, but it does unlock a whole other opportunity for you to, 
um, have a meaningful impact on the game world, both in terms of the status of the Hornsaw Forest and the status of some of the uh, elves who live there. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, uh, it's um, uh, again uh, kudos to you, Travis, because I, I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this uh, when it comes Thanks, out. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I really hope so. It was a lot of fun. And yeah, who doesn't like to, who doesn't like to slay an evil dragon? It's really, really. I don't don't think there's much talking to this one. Uh, do you think there's any way of negotiating this with the wood rack with the wood rack dragon? Off? No, um, I, no. That's pretty yeah. much a. a uh, you're going to have to stab it um, lest it eat you. Uh, there are plenty of opportunities yeah. in the campaign for nonviolent uh, resolution. That's not one of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that said, if that happens at your table, yeah, we're I mean, not going to I'm not going to show up and like yeah. kick the door down at your apartment and take your book back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> How dare you? Is that a thing we can do? Is, are we allowed to do that? I can just imagine that, like, Eddie hears that someone's using Pugmire to go on, like, slaughter <laughs> missions. And he's like, no, no, bad dogs. That is not what this game is about. Roll the book up, smack him on the nose with it. No, well, no, Travis, no. Uh, if anyone here knows about having <laughs> their door knocked down and their fun stop. That is true. Be. That is true. There's footage. Um. <laughs> uh. I, I, see, I, it's actually ties into. Uh, here's us uh, going off piece a little bit. I think it's uh, worth doing it. We never do that. No. We never. Yeah, no. We never go no. on tangents. Bre- nope. Breaking no. from the trend. Something I was asked about at uh, Fabcon. I was interviewed at this Italian gaming convention. It was lovely over the weekend. And uh, it was lovely to be online speaking to Italians. Uh, And I just imagined the gelato. Right. uh, But one of the questions they asked me was my opinion on the... I don't know whether it was called the Orc Gate scandal. Uh, It seems everything has the word gate attached to it. But the idea of creatures being, I guess, elemental forces of evil... Or, or races, or beings, or ancestries, or families, or what have you. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of discussion about it online. And uh, as we came into Scarred Lands with 5th edition, at a time when uh, it was still basically race, class, and so on, uh, there's still that attachment. But I'm wondering, Travis to put you on the spot right now, uh, what your view is on all of this um, with the idea of some creatures uh, and peoples in role-playing games being preternaturally bad and uh, whether they would benefit from more new... Uh, In terms of... I I guess, first of all, um, in terms of, like, playable characters... um, well, first of all, my thoughts on it don't necessarily matter. What matters is the thoughts of the person who's engaging the game for the first time. Um, that's what's really important, uh, and that's what that's what that's where I draw my opinion from. Right? Is what can we do to make the most welcoming environment for people? Um, but having said that, though, uh, in yeah. terms of player characters, I was never personally under the impression that a tendency made a declaration like i think there are some connections that 
are getting made that maybe don't make that I don't follow. Um, but again, it's not for me to necessarily understand. Uh, what I will say though is one of the things that we've been shifting the focus of in Scarred Lands pretty much since I took over as the line developer and I'm planning on doing uh, as we move forward <clears throat> is a lot, uh, one of the more, probably the most uh, important aspect in determining where your character's moral compass lies in that world is which god or gods you revere. Um, and I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've seen a lot of people discussing like just chucking alignment um, completely from, from the game. And I think that there are ways to mine that structure uh, that are productive to, to storytelling. And I think that uh, mining the connection between uh, one's faith, one's uh, purported morals, and one's performed morals is also very cool storytelling ground. Um, you know, look around the real world all the time. You see people who say they adhere to a certain faith, but their activities are call that declaration very highly into question. You know, uh, other people absolutely right. uh, show the virtues that one might accept, might say, oh, well, those are very, very, you know, ex-faith virtues, whatnot, but they don't necessarily adhere to that faith. You know, it, it, it's, you know, I think that a person's alignment or a person's view of the world, um, you know, is absolutely unique, but I think it's always viewed in that, contrast of what's the social structure around them and you know especially in a fantasy world what's the religious structure at the core of that and so that's those are kind of the things that i Mm -hmm. that i think uh some of that um bandwidth for story can be shifted more heavily in that direction while freeing it up from um the baggage that comes along with a race right um yeah i always thought racial bonuses were super weird because like not every like no no race of i mean we don't actually have races of people we have you know right. whatever all that language is weird but like no one group of people is the same amount of good at things like intelligence or yeah, <laughs> strength yeah. and so like in my in my last D group um that i was playing in like a couple years back i, I was playing um of a gnome who was raised by dwarves or sorry a halfling who was raised by dwarves and so since she was raised by dwarves my dm let me give her dwarf rachel racials because like that made more sense you know like she learned the things that they learned as they were growing up um Mm -hmm. and she was trained in the way the dwarves were trained so that made more sense to us than giving Mm -hmm. her like halfling bonuses because she didn't know them um so yeah, it's 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 a weird system that I understand why they did it that way, and like originally, but in this day and age, with our understanding of culture and you know nature versus nurture and various races and how they work and whatever, it just doesn't and, really make sense. And there anymore. are some interesting things yeah. about uncoupling some of those concepts. And um, uh, I guess Matthew can uh, run a farty noise over this if I'm not supposed to be saying it, but uh, in in the 
in the uh, collected edition of Young Men's that'll be out like end of the year, early next year, uh, one of the things that uh, we're going to be doing is, is diving a little bit into alternate uh, mechanics for uh, race ancestry, that sort of thing, uh, for use in Scarlands. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I'm trying to be very present of is uh, what is what is cultural and what is physical? Because while you're absolutely right, Dixie, people are not better at something just because of the accident of their birth. Um, if you have a creature who right. is um, at its smallest a foot taller than the average person and has nine times the muscle mass, they're probably going to get a strength bonus. Um, you know. <laughs> Right. And that, that, that makes sense to me on, on, on some level. Like there, there's some level where it's like, okay, if this person is twice as big as a human, you know, maybe right. they're stronger and, than I'm, a human. <laughs> but when it comes to things like wisdom and intelligence, right. how I'm do like, you no, uncouple those? no, honey. And how do you uh, uncouple those while also reinforcing some of the conceits of how you got there in the first place, right? So like you mentioned wisdom. Um Wisdom is one of the, it's all of the traits in Dungeons and Dragons are poorly worded. <laughs> um, wisdom is probably mm-hmm. the worst. Yeah, offender. Well. <laughs> cause that, cause that ability score usually has very little to do with being wise and a whole lot to do with being uh, aware of your surroundings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, in which case then you start looking into, um, you know, well, if, you know, somebody's got, uh, better vision genetically, right? For example, does that give a bonus or do you use a feature like keen senses and sort of figuring those things out, figuring out where you can say, you know, well, this charisma bonus is a little weird or this charisma penalty is a little weird, but we can instead make it a disadvantage on a certain skill check, you know, things like that. And, and so, I mean, it's, those are all, it's all good things to examine. Um, But one of the things that I'm, really trying to do with the section that we're going to be doing in Yugmin's is um, making sure that the logic behind the roadmap is laid out and that the logic behind the roadmap is always something more than just because you were born that way. You know what I mean? Um, have some sort of real yeah. uh, tangible thing to it. Cause I, I absolutely think, you know, like the idea of a gnome raised among dwarves is amazing. I had a, uh, a guy when I ran, um, I was running uh, the Rise of Tiamat, uh, and they were playing a kobold who had been basically rescued as a hatchling by a dwarven mother, um, and raised in uh, the faith of the, of the dwarven god of death, and they so they were like a lawful good necromancer, and. Their concept of it, it was amazing. Their concept of it was that, um, you know, they would do all of your funeral rites and make sure your soul was absolutely where it was supposed to be. And then once that was done, what's left is just matter for the forge, you know, but Mm -hmm. they were also a little bit on the ostentatious side. So they would like perfume their undead and tattoo them and like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do runic carvings and skeletons and whatnot. But this was also a kobold who wore like a, a belt of dwarven kind. So, you know, it's like three, three and a half foot tall kobold with this long dwarven beard. 
Well, yeah, my nice. so, like that, that's the thing about like morality too, and how how you play it. It's like that that same character I'm just talking about. Uh, she was chaotic good, right? Which meant that she was doing some stuff that I, like Dixie Cochran as a person, would find reprehensible. Like she was like, we should kill right. all the goblins because goblins are evil. Because she was very morally right. black and white, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I was playing her that way on purpose, kind of to say like. Like, kind of as a commentary. Like, see, this is how people who profess to be on the right side of things, you know, can get it wrong sometimes. Um, yeah. And she did learn over the course of the campaign. She made friends with some goblins. Uh, she 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 learned things. But, like, there was a... We we fought a necromancer, and she was like, he's a necromancer. He's evil. You have to kill him. Like, he's a, he's a necromancer. He's, he's raising dead bodies. This is wrong. And then, like, we found out afterwards that the necromancer had, like, a wife and kids, and he was sending money back to them. And she was like, well, that's fine. I don't care. He was evil. We did them a favor. Um, and the rest right, of the team was right. horrified. <laughs> right. And, like, that, that, that was an interesting d- that dynamic to play somebody who is labeled as, you know, chaotic good. Like, this is technically a good person. But then... Really, she's she was one of the worst in the party as far right. as and like you can her, justify her actions. a lot of weird stuff under that so. under that uh, umbrella, and that's another thing. Like we could we could go on for days and days and days on this little rant, but so I'll try to keep it as as uh, succinct as possible. Um, <laughs> but I love ranting on this podcast. D and D, the language that was chosen for the alignments forty years ago is just not the best word choices for what those alignments are actually trying to much like the ability scores they're misnamed um chaos people Mm -hmm. often see chaotic and they think oh that means i'm playing you know the joker i'm just running around screaming and laughing and and nothing matters no that just means you don't have adherence to a particular code of ethics uh law just means you have adherence to a particular code of ethics might not even be the law of the land you know, you just have a, a, a code mm-hmm. that you will not violate. Um, evil is simply selfishness. It's simply what's for me. Um, that's it. And then your modifier is what you'll go through to to get that. Uh, you know, lawful evil people also have a code. They won't betray it. Um, you know, whereas chaotic evil don't care about morality. They just want what they want. And if they have to wade through blood and skulls to get it, so be it. Um, same thing with good. Good is just charitable. It's just looking at the outside. Um, so you can justify mm-hmm. a whole lot of horrible crap under the guise of being charitable because you're serving the greater good. Some of the greatest atrocities of humanity were carried out by somebody claiming to be serving the greater good. You know what I mean? The greater good. I mean, I think that realistically (laughs) they should be, you know, a a more accurate terminology would be uh, selfish or, um, I don't know, I guess what would be the opposite? Altruistic. Um, You know, you're you're, you're chaotic altruistic as opposed to... Yeah, I mean, no, I, I, no one I, wants to visit the uh, the plane defined by its chaotic <laughs> um, selfishness, do they? They want right. to go to the abyss because it's chaotic. Yeah, it's true. The language isn't right, quite exactly. as, as the language is sexier because it's blunter, um, more blunt, I should say. I mm-hmm. suppose. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of like my own pet rant about that. So that's one of the things that I plan on um, at least presenting as a touchstone for the reader when we're doing some of these mechanic updates 
Um, you know, so they can kind of see what the thought process is behind it, at least. And having said that, if you're listening to this podcast and you're playing Scarlands, um, hack up the races however you need to, to tell your story. You know what I mean? Like, here's, here's no. I think we established that if they did that, you were going to bust no, into their house no, no, and hit them was, with a book, right? Right. Yeah. That was a different. That was a different. That was previously established. That, that's canon that I now. I already don't remember what it was. It was so offensive. I blocked it out. Um, <laughs> right. Because you're so chaotic. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. Travis, the Kool Aid Man, leg. I wish I could. I wish I could oh, just yeah. people's houses while they were playing and shout, oh, yeah, and then walk away. I wouldn't do anything else. Like, that would just be. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving a big hole in their wall. Right. That's oh, yeah, really unsound. Insurance. Yeah. And a new plague sweeping middle America, and his name is Travis Legg. I love it when you do that voice. It's been a while since I've gone back to the 1950s newscast. I really love that voice. (laughs) I I need to find an excuse to do a full video of um, and there's Uncle Joe Stalin waving off the army. Thank you, Uncle Joe. (laughs) So the adventure, the adventure Kickstarter is coming up at some point. It is. (laughs) Well, there you go. I found my niche. Oh my god, we need Matthew to do the voiceover for the Adventure Kickstarter video. <laughs> soccer, soccer Nazi on the chin. Clean his clock with your fist. Do it for the mother country. Do it for Russia. Oh my gosh. Oh no. Call your left hand sickle and your right hand hammer. Because, anyway. I don't came know from why behind my, the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I don't know why my uh, my newscaster has, the caster has suddenly gone Soviet. But... <laughs> I don't know either. Yeah. yeah. That's because you're a chaotic good, Matthew. Yes, he made some choices in the <laughs> 1930s that, made, that didn't pay off come the purges. I probably retired to Argentina, realistically. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Where all the Soviets went. Uh... <laughs> Boy, were they in for a shock. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we've uh, spooled off into the realm of fantasy shortly before our regular time. So what I was going to ask, Travis, I know we keep putting you on the spot. You are the guest. That's so true. signed up for this. That's true. True. Uh, but obviously, I know that you've uh, had an awful lot of involvement with with Technocracy Reloaded, uh, with yes. Mage of the Ascension, as well as Scarred Lands. Uh, could you tell the listeners, anyone interesting who is uh, anyone listening, anyone interesting, anyone listening who is interested in Mage of the Ascension, what you and Steffi Devan have been doing with the operatives? Uh, handbook for technology. oh yeah so um we've been uh putting that together that's kind of what the that's ultimately the book that was unlocked uh during the during the kickstarter uh was once known as the technocracy players guide now known as the operatives dossier and what we've been trying to do is that's it. um just create something that is um a incredibly useful toolbox for technocracy campaign, but you'll also find plenty in there that uh, serves uh, Mage the Ascension in general. Um, 
We are updating the digital web, which I am extremely excited about. Um, it's a challenge to write any sort of, well, I mean, I'm sure I don't have to tell, especially Eddie, but any of you this, when you're writing sci-fi, uh, it's very difficult to like, not just become absolutely paralyzed with fear about, um, about Moore's law, <laughs> like whatever I think right. is going to be really cool is going to look real dumb in two years when somebody looks back on this. Uh, you know, uh, but you kind of have to, there's a certain amount of, you have to just, you know, grin and bear it and dive in. And so we're doing that with, uh, the digital web, particularly, uh, incorporating some neat new rules about how augmented reality interacts with the digital web. Um, and giving, uh, mages who use that technology, uh, just, absurd unfair advantages <laughs> when they're in the digital way. Um, but at, a, at an absurd and unfair price, I suppose. Um, we're also uh, incorporating uh, one of the things that kind of going through uh, the rather extensive Mage 20 line, uh, there's a lot of ground that has been covered. So uh, I'm a big fan of kind of looking for those little gaps that haven't been addressed. And one of those gaps that we found were um, the rules for creating uh, like chantries and constructs had never really been updated. Um, there's references back to, to the book of chantries, which is a first edition mage book, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right. So yep. I figure it was probably time to up, update those rules a little bit, um, bring that in line. So there's a bit of that. And then there's also... Uh, there's obviously a ton of neat toys that we're including, um, just devices and technology that technology has. And then, uh, some overviews of, uh, technocratic constructs. So you can kind of see like at different scales, how the technocracy operates. Uh, and then there's some adventure seeds that we've got in there. So it's really kind of a, a catch all toolbox, um, for players and uh, story guide, and really, I think both will find it equally useful. Um, we also touch base in there quite a bit on the idea of um, incorporating other factions in the Ascension War and Technocracy game, and vice versa, which is something that I don't think I've seen a whole lot of in previous material. It's been touched on from time to time but we really kind of look at it. Um, a significant chapter of the book looks at that as sort of the meta plot lens through which you approach mage, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, uh, it was certainly a thing in second edition and, um, drifted away in revised edition, which of course is the edition of mage, the Ascension that seems to have caused so much controversy among fans. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um but it's yeah good to see that coming back for m20 yeah it's a lot of fun to look into and it's it's a lot of fun to look at it um you know through some of the lenses of i guess just kind of current social thinking right um you know the world is in a state right now uh and 
that has forced uh, a lot, though by no means nearly enough people uh, to sort of introspect and go, where did we go wrong here? Um, and that's kind of the, the motivation or the inspiration for the way that that inter-faction uh, conflict is framed in the operative's dossier. It's the technocracy going like, oh, crap, we gave all these tools to the sleepers and they elected that for president of the United States. Uh, we gave all these tools to the sleepers and they can't stop <laughs> lighting continents on fire. Um, you know, so uh, maybe we went maybe we went wrong somewhere and maybe we need help. Um, and in a game, to my mind, a game about uh creating an ascendant humanity who rises above their base origins to the next level of consciousness. Uh, to me, the greatest enemy would be human ignorance. And so this is kind of my um, reframing of the central conflict of mage uh, being against, you know, not disagreements over, you know, whose spell is better, but, how do we combat ignorance, an enemy that we can't punch or just spell cast away? Um, yeah, I think uh, the, the technocracy have often been framed, uh, much as the traditions have been in their own uh, peculiar ways, as absolutists who kind of think, well, if you don't agree with me, damn you, because you're worth less than nothing. The technocracy especially... Uh, have been presented in the way that yeah if you are not with us you are mindless and thoughtless and beneath our notice you know and so it's nice to see them being presented in a way that actually gives them a little more nuance uh you know different approaches because why should they all think that in some kind of 100 percent way um, right. that they were all sleepers too at one point they've all got fat well they've not all got families but a lot of them have got families and friends and colleagues and the rest so they should be just as subject to the awareness of what's going on in the world as a tradition mage or a sleeper would be uh so so yeah i i'm i'm glad you're putting that in i'm looking forward to yeah, reading and, and like um you know one of the things about that that we caught a little bit of, I guess you could say, um, uh, unpleasant feedback from small portions of the community regarding uh, the humanization of the technocracy. And so uh, every time I get the opportunity to speak about this publicly, I do so. Um, just because one of the things that we've really put forth some effort in framing this new um, approach the technocracy is taking uh, is just because something is, uh, you know, if you look at it as an observer, as an audience member, and say, oh, well, that's progressive, or oh, well, that's um, a shift in thinking, doesn't necessarily mean it's motivated from a moral place. Now, the, the technocrat on the street may very well have the experience you're describing where, you know, I have a family. I you know, I have a cousin who uh, got sick from COVID, that kind of thing, right? So I see the problems in the world on that, on that personal level. 
but there's also levels of efficiency of approach and history teaches. And if you look at the world around you, current events teach that some of, you know, that these, you know, rule by subjugation rule by exclusion, um, doesn't work. It always ends badly and often with the stated goal unfulfilled. Um, so to a degree, some of this, um, quote unquote, woke movement of the technocracy is about efficiency on a, on a organizational level more than it is about any sort of moral standing, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, no, it does. And uh, as I think that's, it's an excellent addition to the Mage of the Ascension canon, uh, in my opinion. It, I think uh, it's very easy to lose sight, and especially of Mage, oddly, considering they are on one level the most human of the creatures in the world of darkness or the protagonists, it's very easy to lose sight that they are supposed to be grounded in our world, but darker, and that the world of darkness is supposed to be our world, but darker, rather than being a completely alien world where everything is black and white. So, right. yeah. Uh, well, we have we have talked at length. Uh, so I'm going to uh, pass it over to my co-hosts in case they have anything they wish to add or ask before we uh, spin out with our social media links. Uh, Dick, Dixie. Uh, nothing to add. This is really fascinating to hear uh, about some of the stuff that I haven't gotten to read yet, and also just speaking of you know morality in various worlds, I find that very interesting. Um, I will say, like we said at the top of the show, go check out the Demigod Kickstarter. Um, mm -hmm. It is my first writing in a core book that people are going to see, which is super exciting. I've written on supplements before. This is my first core. Um, so I'm super excited about it. And check it out and tell me what you think. And tell me why the Underworlds are the best part. <laughs> no, I wonder what part you wrote. <laughs> everybody on that book is, is wonderful. So I am, I am super excited for people to finally see it. Ooh, and what about you, Eddie? Anything you want no, to actually, add or ask? I'm just now thinking about the the Scion and they came from pan, uh, mashup. The they came from beyond the Pantheon. But, they came uh, from behind Mount Olympus. Right. You could do like you know Hercules movies and you know uh, Thor comics and stuff like that. Just all like nothing but pure pop culture references. But anyway, they um, came from Terra Incognita. Ooh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There um, you go. That is the crossover everyone needs. <laughs> everyone, everyone's clamoring for. <laughs> um, no, this is it's a bit really cool, and um, I, I feel like maybe at some point there might be value in doing a, a, another chat about specifically kind of five E design in, in the modern day, um, because I, I definitely had a lot of thoughts in regards to how it was Pokemon, but I want to kind of drag off track from from Scarlands. Um, so uh, yeah, at some point, I think we could probably spend a lot of time just talking, digging more into alignment and talk about things like, you know, kind of why I ditched it and the pros and cons of that and how the keep the classic terminologies, it's familiar to people, but like as Patrick said, or like Travis says, it kind of hasn't aged well and sometimes it's just inherently confusing. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to potentially dig into in the future, but overall, um, I'm, I'm just really pleased that we have someone that we can work with like you, Travis, that, that understands this stuff on a deeper level than I think a lot of us. I mean, I've worked in the 5 space, but you understand it on just a deeper level than I do, and I really appreciate having someone that I could talk to and go, hey, how about this? How about that? And where are things at now? Thank you. That means a lot to hear. And 
I got to tell you, I'm constantly on about how Scarlands is my favorite 5e setting, um, but that's literally only because Pugmire barely counts as 5e. Um, it's so much more elegant and smoother and, right. and different. It's a different system, so I get off on the technicality. Because um, I no, I completely agree, and, and thank you yeah, for that. I love Pugmire. I mean, it's um, obviously I've done a bunch of Canis Minor work for it, and I've worked on at this point three books, mm-hmm. I think. But um, yeah, it, it, and that is to me um, a a shining example of the type of really cool innovation that you can do with things like the open game license that you rarely see mm-hmm. done. Right. That's one of the Thank things you. that really turned me on about Pugmire was because a lot of times, uh, myself included, um, people just crank out sort of new thing, n- you know, new cog to fit in the existing machine of 5e, um, as their right. product. And, uh, Pugmire could have gone that way. And it's just super cool that you, uh, made the choices that you made to make it to, to differentiate it because they're all good choices. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I'm, like, <laughs> I'm glad someone thinks so because I look at it and I just go, oh man, I, I should do all of this differently. Just just rip it all up and start again. So <laughs> but I think every designer goes through that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, um, but yeah, so yeah, let's, 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 let's at some point wrap, or get together and maybe talk more about just kind of 5e's I would design. I love that. That would That'd be, be awesome. Fun. Woo! So, Travis, if people want to find you on social media, support you and the like, where should they go? Uh, I am at Travis Leg everywhere that I am present on social media. I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Travis Leg. Uh, every month I do a, uh exclusive RPG product that I just send out for patrons. And I'm actually super excited because I... Uh, ran two polls over the course of the past year and said, would you all like to see this collected and released to the public? And the overwhelming response was yes from my patrons both times. Uh, so uh, literally today, uh, as of the day we're recording, not the day you're listening to this, I released the first collection of that material. So um, and it's called Fairhaven and Beyond, and that's up on drive through and it's uh, adventures that take characters from levels one to eight that, have been trickling through my Patreon for the last two years. Um, so super exciting cool. to see what the general public thinks of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dixie, if people want to find you on social media, where would they go? They go to Dixie Cyanide on most social media platforms or DixieCochran.com. And how about you, Eddie? Uh, folks can find me at uh, uh, PugStudy.com um, and something I haven't plugged in a while, but um, if you are interested in me badly playing mystery video games and watch me babble about game design and sometimes Sherlock Holmes. Um, I do occasionally Twitch uh, streams on Wednesdays at Eddie Fate, E-D-D-Y-F-A-T-E. And they can find me on MatthewDawkins.com. That has all of my social media links there. Feel free to drop me an email if you have any questions or queries regarding anything I've worked on or anything I might be working on. And with that said, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Many worlds. (laughs) 